freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light I. Lee, Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. As a future ancestor, I'm speaking from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum wrapped in a contradiction, both a crime scene and a confirmation. These lands were stewarded for millennia by indigenous peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk nations. These human beings raised their children here, created their communities, made sense and meaning of their lives together, experienced the flowing and the passing of time together, planned for the future, and buried their dead here. I acknowledge them and thank them all. I apologize for the actions of my settler colonial forebearers, and I join in solidarity, seeking truth, repair, and reconciliation. Chicago is a confluence of water, wildness, people's hopes, and aspirations, a place of outsized and crazy complexity, built up by the hands of immigrant workers and African ancestored people, escaping the terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. Justice seekers, freedom fighters, teachers, and cultural workers, artists and creators, organizers, and activists. All of us who stand on humanity's freedom side must remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, genocide and exploitation. And we must also pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Chicago is where I reside and work, where I rise up filled with gratitude and awe on each fresh morning. This is where I recommit to projects of repair and revolution in this bruised and battered world. Chicago is where I begin again and again. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is from Eve Ewing's Majestic 1919, and the poem is Emmett Till. Each of these poems begins with an epigraph taken from a report that was made in Chicago by business leaders after the 1919 riots. This is the epigraph. There is no time to be lost. Other matters must be put aside for the moment, and a solution reached for Chicago's greatest problem. And then here is the poem. It's called, I Saw Emmett Till This Week at the Grocery Store. Looking over the plums one by one, lifting each one to his eyes and turning it slowly, a little earth checking the smooth skin for pockmarks and rot or signs of unkind days or people, 
then sliding them gently into the plastic, whistling softly, reaching with a slim woolen arm into the cart. He first balanced them over the wire before realizing the danger of bruising and lifting them back out, cradling them in the crook of his elbow until something harder could take their bottom space. I knew him from his hat, one of those fine pork pie numbers they used to sell on Roosevelt Road. It had lost its feather, but he'd carefully folded a dollar bill and slid it between the ribbon and the felt, and it stood at attention. He wore his money, upright and strong. He was already to the checkout by the time I caught up with him. I called out his name, and he spun like a dancer, candy bar in hand, looking at me quizzically for a moment before remembering my face. He smiled. Well, hello, young lady. Hello, so chilly today. Should have worn my warm coat like you. Yes, so cool for August in Chicago. How are things going for you? Oh, he sighed and put the candy on the belt. It goes. It goes. That's Eve Ewing's poem, I Saw Emmett Till This Week at the Grocery Store. Our second regular feature is a free write, where we ask you to pause the podcast for as long as you like and write wildly in response to this prompt. Imagine yourself in your local grocery store, where you run into a person, long departed, who you know only from your reading of history. Write a short portrait or sketch, including a few lines of dialogue. Okay, put some words on the page, spontaneous and unedited, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. It's time for our regular segment, Artists, Activists, and Authors After Hours. And we're delighted to be joined by the acclaimed activist and teacher, Brian Jones, the director of the New York Public Library Center for Educators and Schools. So, Brian Jones, it's great to see you. Likewise, great to be here. And we're here with Roxana Espos, myself, and Brian Jones in conversation. I guess where I'd like to begin um, is talking a little bit about your new book, which I just read the Tuskegee Student Uprising, A History. Maybe tell us a bit about the evolution of this, how it started, where you went with it, and and the thrust of what it says. I think it's an important book. Thank you. Thanks for reading it. So the actual genesis is uh, dates back to when I was an elementary school teacher in Harlem. And I was an activist, uh, of course, and doing everything I could to defend and improve public education as I saw it in a context in which it felt like there was this elite-led movement to privatize public education that had funders and supporters with deep pockets. And there was a way in which this movement to privatize public education as I saw it and experienced it, centered the the image of, or seemed to focus its narratives around the fate of Black students in particular. And I thought that was curious 
because it seemed that me, uh, a teacher in Harlem with many black students um, and my black teacher colleagues seemed to be the target of this attack. And I thought that was strange. Like, oh, there's a great concern and care for these black students, but not for the educators who are showing up every day uh, to try to work with them. You felt that you were a target as well then. Yeah, yeah. Uh Um, Like we were the problem. Right. And the, you know, people with uh, the bigger checkbooks were the solution. So about this and trying to think about it some more and understand it. And that's what led me to Tuskegee. It led me to black education history and to a moment that seemed to kind of rhyme with my present. And that was the moment after the overthrow, the violent overthrow of radical reconstruction, where there was an attempt to put the genie of black freedom back in the bottle. Mm. And school had been so central to the revolutionary moment that was reconstruction. And then figuring out how to constrain Black education became a principal endeavor. And I read James Anderson's book, Education of Blacks in the South. And that really, I mean, I was poleaxed. It hit me like a ton of bricks. The idea that, oh my gosh, there had been this upsurge of democratic education for liberation after the overthrow of slavery. Of course, that's what happens. We see that in revolutions all over the world, that same pattern. It's not just black folks. It happens everywhere. And that, of course, the attempt to to constrain that and to rein that in when you're overthrowing reconstruction requires you to transform the schools. And so what Anderson contributes is that it doesn't just come from the South or the old slaveocracy trying to reassert its control. It actually comes from the deep pocket folks in the North. Right. We're trying to reintegrate the South into the economy. Anyway, long story short, they created and were very focused on the fate of Black students. Right. And they wanted a certain kind of education. And Tuskegee was the foundation stone of an elite-led plan for Black education after the overthrow of Reconstruction. Tuskegee was the model. Tuskegee was the template. And that also felt uh, resonant. But when you get obsessed about Booker T. Washington, who founded Tuskegee, you get obsessed about these things and you read all the books, as I did, I think you'll notice a pattern, which is that students protested. Uh Students on the campus protested. They did it quite a bit. In fact, Washington himself complains about it, that that I'm trying to do right by these students, but they keep protesting me. They don't get it. So, so the Tuskegee model that they were protesting, what was the It model? was a model that was, it was, first of all, it started off as teacher training. And the idea was that we're going to inculcate Black teachers in the South with the idea that the free market is the ideal social arrangement. People, um, capital and labor's interests are aligned. And Black people... Um, are just as capable as anyone, yet are culturally backward and therefore have to be acculturated to the values of the market. And they're going to learn those values by hard work. And they have to start, they can rise, but they have to start at the bottom 
And all of this kind of political agitation for equality, for social equality, for political rights, voting rights, all of that is, is putting the cart before the horse. What Black people need to do is start at the bottom, work hard, be useful and to the Southern economy. And in doing so, they will, uh, they will have a chance at arising. And so that was the kind of governing philosophy. Students, what's interesting is that the students showed up in the early years, the late 19th century and early 20th century with other aspirations. They wanted all of those things. I mean, they were kind of like, cool, sign me up. Sounds good. But then they show up and they want more. They want the skills to be taught at a higher level. They want professional training. Um, they are clearly dissatisfied. And we know this because it's all over the literature about Booker T. Washington and Tuskegee. Students even went on strike in 1896 and 1903. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're so used to thinking about Washington's main antagonist as being W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. But you see people dismiss Du Bois because Washington was born in slavery. Right. Okay. He's living and working, building a school in the deep South. That is dangerous. Even any kind of school. That is dangerous business. Du Bois is born in Massachusetts. He went to Harvard. So you can kind of dismiss Du Bois. But the students are a different matter. The students don't come from Massachusetts. In the early years, they're coming from Alabama, from Louisiana, from Mississippi. They are there in that place. They are of that place and they're in that place in that time. They are in danger as well. And the fact that they show up and see it differently, despite the same circumstance and danger, et cetera, I think takes one kind of set of criticisms off the table of or one kind of ways of just defending or kind of exonerating Washington off the table. So it's not to say that, that there's not, I, I think there is, um, you know, there's a healthy and what I consider reasonable people whom I respect disagree about all of this, by the way, I just want to say, um, you know, there's, there's smart people who really disagree um, with kind of my take on Booker T. Washington. And I guess all I'm trying to assert is, we have to also acknowledge that students in many occasions and over decades and decades showed up on the campus and saw things differently, organized, felt so strongly they organized themselves to challenge Washington's priorities in different moments, and in some cases prevailed. And so that is important to me uh, because I think we are, Booker T. Washingtonism is still with us. We still struggle to create models of schooling that are not bowed and bent by elite priorities. That's very difficult to achieve. And it often feels like the best you can do is kind of put your head down and just make your way through it as it is. And yet Black student protest has also been a pervasive feature of schooling and not just at Black schools. Um, in some ways, what we see at Tuskegee is an extreme uh, set of features that I think we could say are in many ways true of all schools. It's not about picking on Tuskegee as like some kind of weird outlier. Um, you know, education for socialization, to adjust people to uh, life as it is and make them feel that what they get or don't get out of life is 
up to them purely in a matter of their deservingness, that whole kind of meritocratic idea, which is a important uh, from one point of view function of all schools today, that that is all that's part of what's that's part of the whole landscape of, of schooling. Um, and so that's not it's not something unique to Tuskegee, but we see in Tuskegee's founding and its history a moment of social, it's connected to this moment of social upheaval and the very um, salient question and perennial question in this country of what are we going to do with the population of people that we kidnapped and brought here to rely on them for everything. Um, now that they broke themselves out of that arrangement, what are we going to do with them? And so Tuskegee shows us this like question of social subordinates, people who are oppressed, fighting for their freedom, fighting for liberation, for education, for liberation, and doing so um, in some ways in a very unlikely place in a school whose reputation is entirely the opposite, that it's about a kind of social conservatism. And that is why I think the Tuskegee uh, story is so important. So I can tell you how this came to become the book that it is, because it the focus shifted. What happened was, uh, you know, I was talking with my family about this. My dad went to Tuskegee. Oh, I didn't. Wow. Yeah. So my, my dad went to Tuskegee. And so we got to talking about this and, you know, he, we decided to take a road trip. He was Actually, like, let's Brian, go. What, what, uh, what time frame was, was your dad at Tuskegee? Yeah. He was there from 57 to 61. Okay. So we went down there and to the archives and, you know, I'd never been in archives before. This is my first, this is like the summer of 2014. We drove down there and we're looking through and I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book about um, the Tuskegee student strike of 1896 and 1903. I'm following up on the footnotes that I found about this story. Like this is, feels to me like a powerful story. I'm going to tell it. And we found very little, I mean, very, very little. Um, what I did find is in the book, but it's, it's not a lot. It, it's enough for a few pages. And so I was, um, needless to say, a little frustrated and, you know, struggling to, after hours and hours of looking through documents and microfilm and, you know, all of this stuff. And it was one of the archivists who said, well, if you're interested in student protests, let me show you something else. And she brought out this giant bound volume that was it was huge and it was the student newspaper in the 1960s wow and because my dad graduated in 61 neither of us had laid eyes on this like he didn't know what we were about to look at and neither did i so we open it up and there it is all over the student newspaper the students are leaving campus and they're getting involved in the southern civil rights movement they're in montgomery and not just montgomery they're going to the Black Belt counties. They're in Lowndes County, where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee founds really the first Black Panther Party, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Tuskegee students are there. Turn the page, you know, looking at all of this. And there you can see, there's Stokely Carmichael on campus. You know, turn the page. A Tuskegee student is murdered in an off-campus incident. And the, the students don't like the administration's response. So they protest and everything kind of heats up to turn the page. They take the board of trustees hostage and they're presenting demands to the school to transform it into what they call a black university. 
And here comes the Alabama National Guard turning the pages. It's, you know, you got a picture that's like giant, it's all there in the newspaper. Um, and then they shut the school down for two weeks. Everyone's dismissed. You're not a student anymore. You're you're all going to have to reapply for admission. And I just thought, oh my, wow, like this is who knew? I didn't know, certainly, that Tuskegee had this explosive moment. And but once I saw it, suddenly I saw it everywhere. Everywhere I looked, I saw it. It's like it's everywhere. Tus- the fingerprint of Tuskegee in that moment is everywhere. And I, you know, I was flipping through. Uh, the book Black Power, just to get some like background on the Black Power movement for my for this book, I, early in the research, I'm flipping through it, and again, I almost dropped the book. It's like I've read this book so many times. How did I miss this? There was a whole chapter on Tuskegee. There was a whole chapter when Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton sat down to write the book on the Black Power movement. They did. They dedicated a whole chapter to the question of Tuskegee as a model of Black power. It's like, it's everywhere. Actually, this was not, you know, we're used to thinking of the Black power movement as having certain kind of movement centers. And what I'm trying to do is in many ways restore memory of the fact that Tuskegee was one of those centers, actually. And it was a deep South center. Uh, Yeah, and and it's... um... A couple of points. I mean, one is hats off to your dad, but also God bless archivists. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, don't, they blow your mind when you're looking for something, right? But to find this whole, you know, cornucopia of literature and history, and there it is buried. What an extraordinary moment for you. And I'm, I'm telling you my dad's connection, but I also have a connection to the story on my mom's side, I discovered almost as the book was about to go to press. And, um, one of the most important figures in the story is Gwen Patton, Dr. Gwendolyn Patton, who was the first Black woman elected to student body president. She was a leader in the movement. And then after she graduates, she goes on and has this enormous career in radical politics and Black radical po- politics. She's connected to everybody and everything. Uh, and then she goes back and gets a PhD, becomes a lecturer and a professor and a sought after speaker. Um, I could go on and on about Gwen Patton, but um, after she passed, uh, New South Books published posthumously her memoir, and she had shared a few chapters of it with me for my research, and I'd interviewed her extensively. Um, and I was flipping through that book, and I saw a photo of her as a high school cheerleader in Inkster, Inkster, Michigan, near Detroit. And I thought, oh, that's my mom in the picture next to her. So I called up my mom. I said, Mom. And I texted her a photo of, of the, from, the, from Gwen Patton's memoir. I said, Mom, oh, my God, I'm seeing a picture of you. And she says, Brian, that's not me. She said, that's my sister. Wow. Vivian. And so I called up my Aunt V, my Aunt Vivian, and said, <laughs> Vivian, I'm seeing this picture of you. And she was like, yes, of course, Gwen Patton. Yes, we were cheerleaders together. And she described her as that little fire stick. And uh, so I wasn't able to get that into the text of the book, but it's in the footnotes, that little fire stick that that's how my Aunt V described her. Um, So anyway, so, you know, it's, it's, it's this story that um, I interviewed 21 people, different members of the Tuskegee community, students, faculty, administrators, some just community members um, 
And wow, what a, an amazing story. And then I tried to connect it and show throughout the decades that the 60s protest, of course, is connected to everything that's going on in the 60s, of course. But it's also connected to a history on that campus and part of the legacy of contestation of different groups of people trying to realize their personal and political dreams in that place. This is quite an extraordinary you know, you are a scholar activist, you're writing about scholar activists, but it's the weaving in of your own story as you tell it to us is fascinating and marvelous. And you have a, a photograph of uh, Dr. Patton in the book, right? And, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And so you did spend some time with her. You were able to spend time with her. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was really um, fascinating to do so. I'm I mean, I distinctly remember I'm, I was sitting in her kitchen in Montgomery. She's chain smoking and we're talking and like the recorder is going. And at one point she says, oh, you know, I'm working on this memoir. Um, I'll share some of it with you. And she goes into her, you know, just off the kitchen. She has this like office. Uh, so she goes into her office and is, you know, digging in there. And a lot of time goes by. Uh, so I stop the recording and I get curious and I kind of peek my head around the corner. And there she is. She's very tiny and diminutive. She's sitting at this desk and the light is kind of coming in and it's just this like dappled light just so. But the wall next to her, the wall that I'm facing is just absolutely, I mean, you can see it in the photo in the book. It's covered with buttons and awards and photographs. It's like somebody who's, um, you know, who spent 50 years in the movement at various scales and working on different kinds of things. And uh, so I was, I just, I was like standing there with my phone. I said, do you mind, can I take your picture right now? And she's like, sure. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And, yeah, uh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I asked. But what a treasure. I mean, not only to find Dr. Patton and to kind of uncover your own connection to it, but to, um, uncover the hidden history, um, that, that, that is lying there kind of in plain sight, but no one knows. And then to have the opportunity to work with it. Yeah. Uh yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, one of the things that I really uh, and and forgive me, I have not read the book yet. Um, I don't know if this photo made it into the book. The but there was a discussion that you did in at Yale a few years ago, um, and it was a picture of the bookshelf mm -hmm. of uh, one of the students, uh, the, the one who ended up becoming a photographer. I love that picture. <laughs> Because it shows the books that all of the students were reading at the time, you know, uh, Leroy Jones and and uh, Jomo Kenyatta, Brent Spannon, and and it was perfect <laughs> because it showed the breadth of all the things that they were into, but then also the you know that they understood the solidarity that their that their struggle was not just what was happening on campus but that it tied internationally that um you know all all of those things and i just um i think that was something that that really when i was listening to that that talk that you gave i think it was at yale um it really impacted me and then also you know the fact that you're talking about the um that there was there wasn't anything in the archives that you had to go to the student newspaper and again, you're, you know, especially now when we're seeing so much, um, you know, suppression of student, not just activism, but student recording of that activism, um, you know, it's, 
it, it, I think it's particularly important to, to, to take note of that. Um, so uh, that, that it's students who are not only being active, but that they're the ones who are being active and recording their own history. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing the degree to which Tuskegee students were conscious, at least some of them, of and had this impulse to archive their own struggle, not only, of course, reporting on it in the student newspaper, which was my first main source, as I described, but um, there's more to say about the photographer you mentioned. Uh, he's after my father, I think he was the first person I interviewed because he lives in New York now, Chester Higgins. Um, Chester Higgins learned to take pictures at Tuskegee. He was taught by a photographer off campus. He just was kind of mes- stumbled into the guy's house on another kind of errand and then saw the, the, the man's photographs. The man's name is P.H. Polk. And Polk agreed to teach him how to make pictures the way he did. And Chester Higgins went on to become a renowned, world-renowned photographer of the African diaspora. His latest photo book is called Sacred Nile, and it's about the the role of African people along the Nile River in founding, in creating founding templates for many of the world's major religions. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chester Higgins, I asked him when I interviewed him in his home, I asked him, did you take any pictures? I thought, oh, my God, you must have all these pictures of protest. And he said, actually, I only have one picture. <laughs> um, that's like what you described. And he showed it to me. And I was like, whoa, that's a beautiful picture. And, um, you know, just the look on the students' faces, you know, it was amazing. Um, and he said, you know, there's your cover. And sure enough, that that is the cover photo. But you're right, he had some other photos. And another one he shared was that one of the bookshelf. <clears throat> Excuse me. And like you describe, it, it's quite it's quite a testament to the way in which political activism is also an educational enterprise. It's really interesting how when people decide that there's something intolerable that needs to change you know, as the process of them trying to change it goes on, inevitably it raises questions. Inevitably it raises questions that they suddenly have a burning desire to know and understand that often are not on the curriculum. And therefore they have to seek out knowledge and information that's outside of the official purview of school. And suddenly school feels inadequate. We're not, suddenly school feels like we're not addressing the urgent burning questions of the hour and there are people writing books and talking and discussing about the urgent burning questions of the hour elsewhere. And so that kind of intellectual awakening um, represented in that photograph, among others, I think is, is part of what I was trying to track and trace in this. And that's part of the reason that this is, um, you know, a book that belongs not only in the kind of black power field, but that's, I think, why, why we're talking, because this is also a book about school. It's about students who, in the course of their own movement, decided to turn their attention, not just off campus, but on campus as well, and tried to change teaching and learning on their campus. Yeah, the book uh, really dives into the con- a basic contradiction, which is with us today, and that is the aspirations of Black families, Black students, 
for a liberatory education and the reality of education as a kind of sorting machine and a judging and uh, classifying machine. Uh, and these folks at Tuskegee were caught up in it in 1968. But as you described, that contradiction goes back to the beginning. Um, and I think, I think I'd love to hear you talk more about that contradiction, how you've lived it out uh, in your own activism. Well, I think, um, you know, it's a good question. And I think anybody who works in schools or really any of our major institutions recognizes that they are shot through with all kinds of contradictions. And we're all living inside of very contradictory I mean, those of us who have these kind of institutional roles, we're we're knee deep in, you know, up to our our elbows in all kinds of contradictions. And I guess as I was sorting through the demands of the Tuskegee stu student movement and trying to understand what it was the students were calling for, I guess I came to the conclusion, I, I don't guess, I, I know I came to the conclusion that the real meaning of black power and a black university was uh was was two things yes it was the broader process of social liberation that they yes saw themselves part of a global movement and they wanted to draw on the strength and inspiration and lessons and whatever they could glean from that they wanted to participate and and make their contribution to that global effort yes no question but they also wanted to be okay and survive in this, you know, North American wilderness, as Malcolm X called it. Like, in other words, they were not dropping out of society to say, I'm just, I'm not going to have a job. I'm just going to live by my wits on the, you know, fresh air of the movement. They had career aspirations as well. And for some people, you know, this is, I'm painting with a broad brush here. But I think actually part of the power of the Tuskegee movement and why it was so explosive and garnered so much support on campus was the skillful way that activists married those two impulses. Mm -hmm. So you have demands that are about, well, wait a minute, why are we only teaching European languages? What about African languages? That is, what about things that help us broaden our view of Blackness and the African diaspora? Okay, that's them bringing the global revolution into campus. But then you have other stuff that's like, well, why don't, why, why are college athletes sinking into debt? They should be able to go for free. We should have scholar, increased scholarships, full ride for student athletes. Why do we have to go do ROTC? Why is that mandatory? That should be, you know, there are things about, about just making it and surviving and being able to afford going to college and all of those kinds of demands were in the mix as well that are not necessarily, you know, quote unquote, revolutionary demands or trying to overthrow the institution or something like that. In fact, Tuskegee students, I think it's accurate to say, we're not trying to tear down their school. They were trying to build it up. They actually wanted it to be more effective in two ways, if we're honest. One of those ways is more effective at preparing them to be successful, uh, to rise to the level of their even professional aspirations. And another way is that they wanted it to be more connected to what they saw as a rising global wave of social transformation that was going to um, sweep away um, many of the ways that many of the legacies of slavery and colonialism, 
um, and bring about, I mean, at least I think we could say a kind of democracy in in terms that are already familiar to us in the present day. Just the battle for the right to vote, for example, which is still incomplete in the United States of America, has not been fully achieved, uh, was something that the students were fighting for in the rural Black Belt counties. So I think they had a kind of vision of social change and democracy that they were participating in, and they had an agenda uh, that was about their own survival in in the in the professional marketplace of, of the United States of America, and they were trying to marry those aims in this movement. So in a way, you describe Black Power as a fight for democracy, a fight for authentic democracy, and you mentioned the fight for the vote, which we all can note is slipping backwards at a rapid rate, but but it was not just formal democratic levers they were asking for. They were pushing for the right to participate without constraint and, and therefore to be seen as fully human and full participants in, in, a, in a free world. Um, I think I'd love to hear you say a few more words about that because I think black power is often held up as a uh, some kind of weird ultra left offshoot but actually in the context of 1968 and today i think that black power had this deep deep democratic impulse absolutely i mean it's there's no question that that their approach was and this is reflected in in stokely carmichael and and charles hamilton's book as well that the whole idea is actually not black supremacy like we're gonna you know step on the necks of white people like that wasn't their aim actually their aim was full equality immediate full democracy and democratic participation like you know elections and like let the chips fall where they may none of this their elders were in favor of a kind of more gradual approach to to all of these questions um and and they they were they were advocating for a kind of more humane governance, frankly. I mean, their their idea was, well, if Black people get in charge, we can show how to run things in a humane way, um, not in a way that's like Black supremacist or something like that. And even the things that might kind of have a, you know, quote unquote, violent echo or, or you know, sound in the way that they're put. Um, you know, I wrote all of this before January 6th and that sort of thing. So here the students are like, you know, barging into a building and holding the trustees hostage. But, you know, that's hostage in what sense? I mean, you know, the, they weren't they were barging in with weapons. They were barging in with documents, you know, and uh, and they were and they weren't trying to, you know, they weren't trying to murder the board of trustees. They're trying to convince them. They're trying to persuade them. Um, and then like one of them had to leave. He's like, oh, I have, a, I have to catch a flight. And they're like, okay, well then you can go <laughs> and we'll continue the conversation with everyone else who's here. Like that, you know, this wasn't, uh, so So just to say that, that, that even though they kind of took these extreme methods, also they came to these extreme methods after trying a lot of other stuff first. They wrote letters, they wrote petitions, they sat in on meetings. I mean, it went on and on and on. And it was only at a moment of kind of frustration, feeling like they were being, um, you know, that there was like foot dragging going on and they were, and that just stumbling box were, were piling up in front of them that they finally took a more, um, you you could say radical action. Or direct um, action a, a direct action. And yeah, you bring up January 6th. I, I get very, very irritated with the false equivalency 
which takes tactics and makes them somehow similar. January 6th was a people, a group of people with Confederate flags asking to keep a, an authoritarian leader in power against uh, the will of the electorate. And it's completely different than a demonstration where people try to expand democracy and include humanity in the poli- polity. You know, it's it, the equivalency breaks down instantly. instantly. There is an interesting thing you've raised. When they took over uh, the board of trustees meeting and when the when the guard was called out and when the police showed up there's this phrase that you use about you quote a soldier or a guardsman saying uh tuskegee's been uppity for a long time speak about that a little bit well i think that was quite a moment because it shows it's one of these moments where no matter how you know it's kind of like um the way the goalposts of like respectability politics just keep moving like well if you dress differently you know if you don't sag your pants or if you do this or do that you know then things will turn out better for you but then the police uh, go after people who are you know buttoned up and you know preppy uh, go to college well michael brown was going to college you know like it, it, there's a way in which the the goalposts keep moving and to me that moment where the guard shows up and says, yeah, well, you know, you all have been uppity for a long time. It's kind of like, uh, no matter how you've tried to present a constrained image of, uh, you know, to the world, so that, so as not to offend, um, very clearly, so as not to offend, this is not a place of riot. You know, we're just, we're here humbly pursuing education as you've, you know, allowed us to do. But even that is too much uh, for some people. And so, um that comment really echoes through the ages that no matter how much you try to uh to kind of accommodate to a racist logic uh that racist logic is is going to assert itself one way or another and you can't ever win that battle but yes i mean this was you know it's uh frustrating that kent state is um a tragedy that it was that students were murdered uh, on a college campus at a protest but our society has not um, taken the time to remember the way in which black college campuses were under um, so much assault. There was so much, uh, in so many instances of police and national guard invading black college campuses in these years. And the one that's most recent to Tuskegee or closest in time was in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And so it's where, where students were murdered. And so it's entirely when the National Guard shows up at Tuskegee, it's not an exaggeration to say that this was a mortal situation that like, you know, you had a four star general who knew that he was in no danger. He's one of the trustees. I mean, he knew he was in no danger. He went. He's the one who had to catch a flight. They let him go. And uh, the interviewer, you know, he's at the train station or the airport and, uh, you know, interviewers rush to him and say, well, were you in any danger? He's like laughing. I was like, what? No, no, no. They just wanted to talk. Um, and I think he's quoted as saying something to the effect of they just wanted more um, participation in running the school, frankly. So in a way, it's an extension of that democratic impulse that they're trying to fight for in the surrounding region. Actually, they also wanted more democracy in the running of their school uh, as well. You know, you bring up you bring up the, the, the ways in which we can see white supremacy quite clearly in, for example, the reporting of Kent State versus other tragedies, other examples when they don't include 
white middle-class students. We see it in the Chicago Convention of 68 with no real coverage or real historical memory of Miami in 68, mm. um, in which black people were killed. And you know, it, it's, it goes on and echoes throughout our history. But what it brings me back to is your discovery of this story. And now through your wonderful book, my discovery of this story, and I called it a hidden history. And the question I have for you is, and this is my question, whenever I discover something that I didn't know, I want to know whose interest is served by us not knowing what happened at Tuskegee or not knowing the, the student uprisings of the 60s as a kind of a white phenomenon, which it was not. Yeah, that's a good question. I always hesitate to call something a hidden history because there are people who know. I mean, you know, it is new to me, but of course not new to them. Um, and it is a story that's mentioned in other books kind of in passing. Um, but my book is really the first book to focus on the student movement. There's another book about the faculty movement that preceded it. The faculty led this long struggle, um, kind of patient and persistent, mostly legal struggle. And they won a Supreme court case, uh, against their disfranchisement. Um, but your question is who's served by not telling this story? Well, you know, I think there's a way in which um, it's understandable in a way that, you know, Tuskegee's other claims to fame, including like, you know, the kind of scientific genius of George Washington Carver, Booker um, T. Washington, probably the nation's most famous educator. I mean, certainly most famous black educator. Um, but there's like, are there 31 movies if there aren't 50 movies about the... Um, about the World War II pilot training program, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, so there are ways in which you can kind of tell a story about an institution making contributions to what are perceived as proud national triumphs or moments. And so those things kind of tend to get a certain elevation and have like the wind at their backs. Moments on a campus that point in other directions are kind of more uncomfortable. It's more uncomfortable to sit with the story of the student movement because while they are battling for democracy in the black belt and fighting, you know, the the what we consider now a kind of brave fight for civil rights in the South, they're also connected to the black power movement, which as you mentioned, doesn't get the same kind of hero treatment in the national, in national memory. Rather, it's seen as like, you know, the the bad 60s, the bad part um you know the the unfortunate part uh of the era and, and as, part every... of the, as part of the bad 60s i want to just put <laughs> yeah, exactly. a marker yeah. and say the bad 60s wasn't all bad and the good 60s is a myth but i think you know i wish that tuskegee administrators i don't know if they've read the book um you know certainly my dad is doing a as an alum is is doing a valiant effort of trying to work it through the through the alumni networks but I think actually the administrators don't come off as all bad in this book. I think actually they're they're seen as like they're defending students, they're enlightened, they're uh, you know they they in certain ways support and um, assist the students in some of their activism. And yes, it comes to a head and they clash in the kind of um, in the final moments of the book. But I think what you see is that, or what I hope people can take away, even from an institutional perspective, if you're trying to reflect on an institution, whether it's Tuskegee or HBCUs, or frankly, any 
of our schools, libraries, institutions, is that the students at Tuskegee were a leavening force throughout the school's history. They pushed and protested. And yes, that can be uncomfortable and less heroic way to view the history. But frankly, they made it better. They did improve it. And you should be grateful to those students who pushed for it to live up to uh, their political and social and professional aspirations. Everything they did improved, not just Tuskegee, but frankly, all of higher education. So we owe them a debt of gratitude. There's another way of framing it um, that's like actually understanding the spirit of their protest, which was loyal to the institution and trying to make it better. So, you know, I hope some people will be able to take it in that spirit. But I think that probably the reason that, um, you know, people might hesitate to spread around a book like this is if they're concerned about present and future Black student protest, that this is the kind of book that might give courage and comfort to Black students on all kinds of campuses today who are looking around and starting to get involved and have similar questions and concerns and might discover in this book that they're, they might feel validated by this book in their sense of that there's some wrong either on or off campus or both, that they are on the way to trying to write, this might be a book that uh, provides them some sense of how their moment fits into a legacy of active, activism on campus. And not everybody wants to encourage such thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'm going to spread the book myself because I think not only is your research um, really uh, admirable, but your writing is terrific and you read the book as a you are driven through the book because it's written so so well and you feel the contradiction coming to life again and again but you know one of the things we do on this uh on this podcast is we encourage book lists and things people should read i'm glad you raised jim anderson's book the education of uh blacks in the south that's a phenomenally important book also i'd raise up my friend martha biondi's book the black revolution on campus um a chicago northwestern university professor but martha's book also uncovers uh, you know I, I like your critique of the hidden history but uh, it's not hidden from some but i do think there's a reason that we don't know things i was talking to a group of high school kids and i mentioned john brown nobody had heard of john brown no Whose interest is it that you don't know who John Brown is, right? So I always ask that question when I, I don't think there's any shame in not knowing things, but I think we should always say something is going on here. Um, yeah, I think Martha Biondi's book is really, it was really crucial to me. And um, and I, I talked with her a bit about my research early on, uh, and she was extremely helpful. And I would say that everybody who's interested in this kind of story should really read her book. It's an excellent starting point because she's taking you through different case studies around the country. So whereas I'm digging into the story on one campus and kind of following it over many, many years and then focusing on the 1960s, what she's doing is taking you through many different campuses and showing you the patterns nationwide Um across campuses and across regions of the country. So it's absolutely an essential book for getting, stepping back and getting the bigger picture of the struggle for Black studies and the way in which, uh, this is a point, one of the points that she makes that really hit me, that so much of this 
curricular innovation in higher education, cracking open women's studies and ethnic studies and making space for all of that. A lot of the energy for that came from the Black student movement and not from research, not from researchers, not from people with PhDs. It came from the students, actually. Isn't that remarkable to think? Um, so I really, uh, I really want to echo your props to her and to, and to that important book. It, it really is a remarkable uh, thing that it comes from below. And you made the point earlier that education is often in the streets. And so you see it from Tiananmen to Soweto to New York to uh, the Philippines, you know, that when you are there in a classroom studying, you come upon a contradiction about the freedom to think, the freedom to imagine. And being in, in an institution that tamps that down, it is an explosive combination. Yep. So what are you reading and what else should we read um, in our book of books? I mean, we, wow. you know, we, I'd be interested in what you're reading now, but also what you think is essential texts for those of us who are committed to a social movement uh, for change, for progress against racism, uh, you know, toward a kind of a fairer, more just society? What are you reading and what should we read? You know, um, that's a deep question because reading is, it's almost like you can, you can give people recommendations, but sometimes it's like the books on your shelf. I mean, you have to kind of like buy the book and then sometimes it sits on your shelf for a long time and then you, you're not going to pick it up until you're ready for it. You know what I mean? Um, so when you're ready for it, there's a lot of things. I'm making my way through, I just finished The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, which is a novel. Right. Um, and I read very few novels. And this one's like a beast at like 800 pages. It took me like seven, four months or something to, to read it, you know, picking it up and putting it down. It's an amazing story, but it also is shot through with this, with this kind of powerful historical storytelling, following a, a family on this land through many generations. So there's this way in which indigenous history and black history are interwoven in the book that, in a way that I find really compelling. I'm also making my way through Barbara Ransby's book about Islanda Robeson, uh, which I think is really fascinating. And, you know, of course, I've been really interested in Paul Robeson, but didn't know as much about his amazing life partner, Islanda, as I'm now learning from thanks to Barbara Ransby's book. Uh, I was so grateful and I've read many times her book about Ella Baker that I thought, well, let me let me try this other one. Um, you know, I think there's also a way in which one of the things I'm curious about these days is uh, the way re, you know, my own education was so Eurocentric. And so it's another way I sympathize with these students who are trying to get a broader view of African history and kind of Africa in the world. And so I've turned to trying to make my way through some books to kind of teach myself some ABCs of African history, frankly, and, and ways to help reframe the history that I thought I knew that's still very Eurocentric and also often very US-centric kind of history. It's not easy to do. Um, so I, you know, seeing on my shelf here, uh, Born in Blackness by Howard French, who's a journalist. And so it's a very accessible book um, where essentially he's reframing the kind of origins of the Atlantic world as we know it um, and showing the role of Africa basically in making the modern world. And uh, I find that, fascinating. But, you know, I know that we, especially Black Americans, have a way of kind of mythologizing pre-colonial, pre-contact Africa. 
And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to get at stories that aren't just like we were kings kind of stories, but really understanding the many different kinds of societies um, that there were on the African continent um, and understanding their both connections to influences on uh, other civilizations and just re kind of organizing my global framework to, to understand more deeply the role of African people. I appreciate uh, your contribution to our book of books. And I'll just echo what you said about look on your shelf, read what you want and make your own reading list. I'm reminded when Tanahisi Coates was here a couple of years ago, I heard him speak at the DuSable Museum and a young aspiring writer said, what should I read? And he said, if I gave you my reading list, it would be my reading list. You have to make your own reading list. So my, my uh, advice to you is read everything and then figure out you know, what you're going to do from there. So in a way, uh, Brian, our book of books is like that. Read everything, but we're curious to know what a lifelong activist, thinker, um, socialist um, organizer, how you th- what, what you're reading, and, and it helps us fill out our own kind of book, book notes. Um, you have something, Roxana, because I have a couple of last questions. I mean, I, I have a ton of questions, but we're, we're running short on time. <laughs> um, there's, I mean, you touched on a little bit of, uh, at the very, very beginning, you know, on, on Black educators, and obviously here in Chicago, um, with CTU, we've had a lot going on <laughs> with with Black educators. We've seen, we've seen that be an issue across the country. Um you know, um, and then, I mean, and this is a pop culture, which we don't frequently talk about here <laughs> on Under the Tree, but um, Abbott Elementary, we're seeing a lot of, you know, Black educators finally on on television. And so I'm just wondering, you know, how how you how you react to it? Do you even watch the show? What your oh, thoughts yes. are? Because I, I, some of my some of my educator friends have mixed feelings about it and how they've handled some of the subjects. Um, so I'm curious what you have to say. I think the show is brilliant. Um, I I'm continually impressed by how they keep taking on mm-hmm. um, different issues and and hitting hard mm-hmm. um you know i think my only criticism of the show is is they have a lot of time to sit around and talk to each other exactly um, you know <laughs> like wow that's not what being an elementary school teacher was like for me but you know apart from that but it, there wouldn't be a show if it was you know what it's actually like the pace of work is appears to be uh, leisurely um, that was the biggest critique. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the problem. But there wouldn't be a show otherwise. But yeah. I think other than that, it's um, the blackness of the show is also what's amazing about it. That it's, um, I love the way the blackness of the show is is kind of unspoken, but is everywhere. And um, and I love the way that the show really centers the teachers. Um, and makes the and after teachers, after we've gone through this period where teachers have this is really where we started in this discussion, where teachers were under attack, had a target on their backs, were vilified as the problem in schools. Here's a show that doesn't center the students, actually, 
doesn't center the administrators or the benefactors or philanthropists. It centers the teachers. The emotional core of the show are the struggles of the teachers, be they valiant, be they thoughtful or guided or misguided. Teachers, when they get frustrated, teachers, when they get burned out, teachers, like all kinds of very human reactions to the challenges of actually being a teacher. Not teachers as like unbelievable heroes, but teachers as like kind of flawed, but frankly, sympathetic uh, human beings. Um, and I think that that kind of heart of the show has been wonderful, absolutely wonderful to see. And I like how they also take on some issues, you know, like yes. um, when they, especially the episode where they talked about like gifted programs, the way they handled that, <laughs> I thought yes. was, that was really terrific. And, so you know, word, Roxanne, explain how they handled it. Um, well, they did a much better job than I could ever do. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the problems with gifted pro uh, uh, programs that they end up making kids who are not in those programs, but are just as, you know, intelligent, feel as if they are less than right. and, and actually end up, you know, possibly you know, ca causing these kids to uh, have um, uh, reject, ed you know, their their schools reject their educational process because they're not gifted, um, yep. you know, quote unquote. Another part of the kind of education reform agenda, the privatization agenda, was to kind of weed out, especially the older teachers, and bring in a kind of revolving cast of younger teachers. Like that was a new business model. It's cheaper. And they were given a lot of wind at their, the younger teachers had all this like wind at their back and the older teachers were seen as a problem. But here's a show where it's actually an intergenerational cast of teachers who are all treated as equally worthy of respect and admiration and sympathy and are have all kinds of flaws and challenges and stumbles and make mistakes and can be boneheaded and frustrated and all of the things but they're you know being different kinds of teachers from different generations coming at the job is not like the core problem of the show or something like that um just the fact that there's this intergenerational cast of mostly, but not exclusively, Black teachers. Uh, is There's many things about it, but the, the casting and the kind of the way the show is framed around that group of teachers, I think, is really admirable. And that it, at, at its heart, it just values public education. Which is unusual. Yeah. We are coming to an end, Brian, um, and um, it's been just delightful to talk to you. I, I have one giant question uh, at the end, um, which is, how do you name this political moment that we're living through? And and in your work and and in your advice to to Roxana and myself, what is to be done? Where where are we? Yeah, that's a difficult question. Yeah, we could have several hours on. It, yeah, but, but yeah. I mean, I think response. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think that there is um, obviously there's something that's kind of gurgling up from the throat that is really uh, nasty and violent and uh, racist that has always been a part of American political life, but now it is kind of rushing forward 
with greater confidence and it has um, more resources at its disposal. And that is happening at the same time that it feels to me that we, you know, take that we as you will, uh, have more resources at our disposal. We are not without resources. Um, and both kind of cultural resources and, um, well, let me just let me just stop there because we're running short of time, but we are not without resources and and they are seem to be gaining strength and resources. And so I think there is a way in which um, there's a kind of like hope for meeting in the middle. And to paraphrase um, C. Van Woodward, you know, there's that's when black people tend to lose rights uh, when is that the reconciliation um, with uh, with with violent white supremacists, uh, with violent white supremacy, reconciliation with violent white supremacy, let's put it that way, is to me a dangerous proposition. And I'm scared, I'm worried that that's where kind of mainstream politics is heading. And that's all the more reason for those of us you say we have more resources than we know. And of course, a major resource is we have each other and we have to absolutely embrace that and organize it and aim it in the right direction. Well, Brian Jones, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I want everyone to rush out and read the Tuskegee Student Uprising, um, NYU Press, an important book and a book for our times, as well as a deep hit dive into a history that is little known, but terribly important for us today. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you both. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, to my co-conspirators, Light Ailey and Roxana Espos, and to Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a bright red shining star. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.